What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the show today. Today's episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. Do you feel like you are stuck in a dinner rut? With HelloFresh, you get fresh, pre-measured ingredients with mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. Skip all those trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. You can now enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in 30 minutes or less with over 25 recipes to choose from each week. There is something for everyone to enjoy. All recipes are designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. Been looking at the menu on this one. The one I'd be picking out right now is that Old Bay Battered Up Chicken. I bet you it just slaps, if you know what I'm saying. So, go to the link in our show notes to get $80 off, including free shipping on HelloFresh, the number one meal kit. Let's start the show. been doing this for close it's roughly 10 months but I, I think december will be a year for me and i'm just trying to treat it as a job or a part-time gig and that way you know i'll try to put in the time put in the effort and you know i feel like when i give into it hopefully it'll start to give back in some point of yes. return and plus it's just you know I, I went to a wedding last night and i was telling some of my friends that it's just so cool to actually start you know connecting with people like yourself and others and just kind of learn from all aspects of life and, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just cool to have and these that, conversations. It's a great education. Yeah, and that's that's why I got on Podmatch to begin with. Was I just wanted to uh, to well, I had to find a way to promote my book. You know, I had to, you know this the COVID has kind of shifted all the rules, and I don't have book tours like you would normally have, and and all that right now. So I have to figure out other ways. So Podmatch has become our podcasts have become a real uh, help for that, and finding you on Podmatch was a big help. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's like I said, it's kind of, you know, I don't want to say my secret sauce, but it's kind of helped with my growth of this podcast, and yeah. uh, and it's, it's kind of where we're at today, and that's, like I said, it's how we can, you and I connected, obviously, like you said. But anyway, well, um, let's give a little bit of your background. Usually, I don't like doing introductions and stuff, but uh, so you're a doctor of cultural exploration, right? Yeah, my, my doctorate is uh, in leadership and the emerging culture. Okay. And yeah. So let's give everyone a background and myself, a, you know, maybe a bit of better okay. understanding to that. <laughs> well, my name is Rick Cromie, uh, okay. Dr. Rick Cromie. Uh, and you know, I always think it's funny that uh, my students, I'm a professor as well. My students instantly started calling me Dr. Cromie when I got my doctorate. But for some reason, they overlooked calling me Master Cromie when I had my master's degree. I, I don't understand that. I didn't one. get that either. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but I got but, and that's OK. That's OK. But my doctorate uh, is uh, is a unique one in that I studied uh, for about three years, a doctoral uh, career, uh, academic career, uh, the science of semiotics, uh, reading cultural signs. Uh, I like to say I'm kind of like a weather forecaster for culture. I, I, I interpret and look look at the, the patterns of history. I'm a, I'm a historian as well. And I look at how history has kind of flowed and there are certain patterns that pop and, and then create forecasts from that. And in my specialty, my expertise is technology, generational analysis. So what is one of the patterns of, you know, you said history and culture that we're seeing right now, or I guess maybe a common theme that we've seen. 
over time. Yeah, well, it, it is interesting. And I'm not the first to, to notice these, obviously. Uh, anybody who's taken the time to look at our, our history can see that there's some interesting things that are bubbling. And, uh, you know, in fact, Strauss and Howe, Neil, Neil Howe and William Strauss uh, wrote back in the early 90s, on when they did a whole book on generations themselves, they talked about how about 80, every 80 years we have, and which is four generations, four generations of 20 years, you know, create a, a constellation. They called it a, of 80, about every 80 years, our American culture, just looking at American history, goes through a crisis, as they called it. And, you know, we've been in that crisis really since September 11th, 2001. Yeah. COVID is kind of COVID could be the back end of the crisis. Uh, usually these crises last anywhere from 10 to 20 years, sometimes 25 years. So we were probably on the back end. But when we think about this crisis, we've had uh, September 11th, uh, 2001. And then we moved into, remember, the Great Recession of 08, 09, yeah. 10 and then, of course, all the things that happened in the last, uh, um, you know, 10 years, but culminating, I think, with with COVID. So we could be on the back end. But what happens in these crises, Chris, is that it pushes us out into a we become a new American culture. We, we, we just it pushes us into a totally different uh, frame. And when you think about 80 years, if you go back 80 years from this point, you get the early 1900s. You get World War One, Great Depression, World War Two. You go back 80 years before that, you get the Civil War, the American Civil War. You go back 80 years before that, you get the Revolutionary War. So there is some interesting patterns to 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 note uh, in this 80 year uh, uh, theory. And, and that's what I love about history. You know, uh, I used to think history was just looking at old dead guys and what they talked about and stuff <laughs> like that. But history is, is is alive. It's 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 literally speaking all the time. And what what we need to do is pay attention to what it says. I like how you said that, that, you know, it seems like, you know, obviously 9-11 was a big historical part of our nation. But it seems like one pattern was everybody got together and was actually, you know, when we say United States, we were united then. We were all for one and one for all. And we were all about America and people were helping people. And it's just, you know, there was a new sense of kindness that and now when we with the corona and you can talk about these other protest movements and stuff that we're almost have a huge line between us. And you're either obviously right or left now. So we, not, we don't have to get political or anything. But, you know, like I said, we were united <laughs> in that one part. Now we're divided again. Let, let's do because technically we are divided. Yes, that's true. We're probably divided now more than at any other point in our history, uh, except for maybe the Civil War. The Civil War, we had to literally fight each other, uh, take up arms against each other, other Americans in order to solve that one. And I don't think it really it's still solved it. I, I've lived in, uh, for example, St. Louis, Missouri, which was a uh, uh, technically an in-between state at the time of the Civil War. And, you know, they're still fighting the Civil War in, in St. Louis. I love that city. I love wow. I love it, but, you know, that, that area. But it, it's still. But here's, here's the thing that's interesting, Chris, is that America has always been divided when you think about it. Uh, our first constitution was in 1776. Sure. It was um, it was a Confederate. Uh, it was called a Confederacy Constitution. It was to create a Confederacy of the States and it basically, if you want to think about it very simply, it created what we call the United States 
of America. Correct. The focus was on a collection of states. And so the states had the rights to tax. The states had the right to uh, to educate how they wanted to. The states had the right to to do everything. The only thing the federal government could do was uh, was was get a militia together, you know, from the militias of the states. Uh, they could uh, do a little bit in the area of, of infrastructure, that type of stuff. It was very low level. But in the uh, 1780s, uh, a group of guys called the Federalists, mm-hmm. Adam, you know, Adam uh, or uh, J- John Jay and Thomas Jefferson and, and that and, and Matt, th- th- that type. And they wrote a book called The Federalist Papers. But they believed that the federal government should have more control and that we should be the United States of America. See the emphasis being on United And from that point on, and we literally rewrote the Constitution, re-ratified the Constitution. And at that point, that's the the Constitution that we follow was the one that the Federalists got through and got ratified. And, you know, but every issue in America comes down to do we believe that we are the United States of America or the United States of America? And, you know, say you think like marijuana out here in the West, you know, there are a lot of, you know, Washington and Oregon, you know, California, those places, they've all legalized marijuana. Well, here in Idaho, where I'm at, you know, our state, for the most part, does not want marijuana legalized. All right. But if you go across the border, you know, you can get and come back. And I'm only 50 miles from the border here in Boise. Yeah. You can literally buy marijuana, come across the border and, and be thrown into jail for it, arrested and, and jailed for it because of states' rights. For you sure. Know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. We just decrim- well, we decriminalize it here in Virginia. So <laughs> and, and I think North Carolina hasn't done it yet. So it's kind of the same sense. But, yeah. you know, speaking of that, I can't remember if it was Oregon and or Washington. But they decriminalized, you know, even like, you know, marijuana, co- and obviously marijuana, cocaine, heroin, like even hard. That was their Oregon. That, did that. was Oregon. Oregon. Okay. Yeah. They, they decriminalized all the harder drugs as well. Yeah. And, and so that's the question. Do states have the right to do that? Well, if you are the United States of America, yeah, absolutely. This is what the southern states did. Yeah. They said we have the right to have slavery if we want it. It's part of our industry. It's a part of who we are as a culture. If you don't like it, that's fine. We're the United States of America. And that's that, that, we've been that way in every issue. So the question then becomes, where do we have where does the lines get drawn and we, the people, have been divided on that from the beginning. Federalizing, we have no problem with federal control over our highways. Can you imagine if every state had to control their own highway system? Oh, goodness. What a disaster that would be. Or, you know, health. I mean, to some extent, this is where healthcare comes in. You know, there are those who think that that should be a federally controlled, you know, healthcare. And there are those who say, no, let every state control their own healthcare. Uh, you know, it, it, what we're, we're education. You think I, about all of our great national education, you know, all that stuff. It Do we have um, common ones for all the states or do we let each state have their individual preferences? Yeah. Um, yeah. The I big mean, issue in the big issue at that time was really religion. Most people, you know, we, we, we tend to overlook that part of it. But when you think about the late 1700s, uh, the issue was religion for these uh, uh, founding fathers because, uh, you look at Maryland. Maryland was a Catholic state. 
Uh, you look at Pennsylvania, it was a Quaker state. Sure. When you looked at uh, Virginia, it was an Anglican state. They all had their preferred state. You know, we wouldn't call them a state religion, but, you know, there are parts of the charters. I'm talking about the constitutional charters of these states that, that state that if you aren't this particular religion, you can't even hold political office. Wow. We would never think about that today. No. But back then it was a big issue. So, well, even if you were to bring that up today, I mean, it would cause, you know, like you just said earlier, I mean, over the, you know, the highway system, it would just cause chaos. It feels like just because of, I don't know if you want to call social justice warriors and just the news nowadays, just exploding something that just a huge ordeal than what it should be. But what are your thoughts on that? Should those, you know, obviously the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, they get it right the first time or should it, we have updated those along our, you know, timeline here? I mean, that's 200 yeah. plus years, what, or at least 100 years old now, maybe 200. Yeah. 1996 yeah. would be 200. Yeah. So 200 plus. And now you're talking about a different thing. You're talking about what, what is the, is the constitution a fixed document or is it a constitution that's constantly fluid and evolving with culture? The answer to both is yes, of course, it it's a be. fixed document, right. but it can only be changed by amendment and by we, the people. It's the people. If if you don't like the way something is and you want to amend it, and and by the way, uh, I think you know this is just my personal opinion and only my opinion. So if you disagree with it, that's fine. But one of the things that I think would be very helpful for for what goes on in Washington D.C. would to actually be have term limits. We have term limits on our our presidents. Why not term limits on senators and legislators? You know, which which would say, but the only way you're going to do that is you have to amend the Constitution of the United States yeah. because it states very clearly how long the terms are. So if we want to do that as we the people, we can do that. But we have to elect people that would be willing to say we need to change that part. And that's the problem. Our legislators kind of like being in Washington for years and years and years and years. And our founding fathers never envisioned career politicians. Not at all. They never envision, you know, when you, when you look at some of our politicians today, they're entering politics. Well, you know, we have a president who entered politics in his early 30s mm-hmm. and has been there for what, you know, 40 years, 50 years. That was never envisioned by the founding fathers, that type of a construct. And that's OK. You're not going to see everything. That's why amendments are so important. On the other hand, there are those who say, well, wait a minute. Why can't the Constitution be more fluid and adapt to culture? And, you know, again, there, there's an argument for that. Uh, I just I just think think that uh, it is a fixed document that's capable of being amended by, again, we the people. Right. Not a court. You know, uh, legislators can put put forth laws. Uh, but if they're unjust laws, that's what the Supreme Court was to do. You know, it's there's been a lot of different evolutions in how we've 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 lived. And I, I find it fascinating to study revolutionary history and early American history, because we have kind of drifted slowly away from who we are and how we've behaved as a culture, politically, personally, culturally, uh, in, in many ways. I mean, do you even think that we, the people, I mean, we could, we even get together and all decide on an amendment for those documents if we wanted to though? I mean, since right. we seem so divided, like we just said earlier, I mean, or was it just be impossible? Well, the Constitution is pretty clear. Right. The way you amend the Constitution is it has to be introduced by an act of Congress. Okay. Congress is the one. So you have to think, is Congress going to basically, let's say term limits, are they going to introduce something that's going to essentially take them out of a job? I think we know the answer to that one for a certain group. Yeah. You know, yeah, so course. you've got to elect people 
if who, who start off by saying, and we had one of those guys here in uh, in Idaho, by the way, uh, there was a, a legislator by the name of Raul, Raul Labrador, and he campaigned uh, back uh, when he, I think he came in under the Tea Party bunch back in, what was that, 2010 was the Tea Party revolution, if you will. Okay. And, you know, he campaigned totally on term limits. And once his, I, I think he did, I think he did three terms and then he, he was done. He said, I campaign on that and I'm done. Even though, state of Idaho liked what he was doing. And for the most part was reelecting him. He said, I'm done. And he stepped away. Hmm. Uh, but it's going to take a group of people who then become the majority to suggest that, because I just, you know, we've created a, in Washington, DC today, you know, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, a swamp where people <laughs> can make a career out of it. And that was never a founding father vision. And they never expected it. It's the same way with, with president. You know why we have a presidential term limit? It was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Roosevelt ran for a fourth term and we had to amend the constitution. We amended the constitution to create, to limit the president to two terms. See? Yeah. Because we didn't want somebody who literally would just get in there and go to death. And that's what, that's what FDR did. FDR got in there and then he was able to then control the Democrat party was in control. They controlled the, the Supreme court as a result, everything went, uh, went their way. And so that total one party control was one of the reasons why the amendment was done for the president. We didn't and didn't want to have that happen again. And by the way, one of his follow up guys, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, was very popular in the 1950s, probably could have run for a third or fourth term himself. Definitely a third term in one in 1960. Yeah. But yeah, it's 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 we the people that do it. But we the people have to do it through the ballot box first. Hmm. That's the American way. Well, it's, it is American way, but yeah. that's a problem. Well, I mean, was it this year or the, not this year, the last election that the most voters was actually happened and like all of Tom or whatever? Yeah. Is that, is that true? Yeah, we've more more people voted in this last election. And we should expect that because there's more people in America. You know, when you when you have more people coming into America, then you're going to have increased. But even per Per capita, there were more people that voted this last year. Uh, it, it's the, even the loser, you know, Donald Trump had more votes than than any, even the people who won in previous elections. The loser had more votes than any of the winners in previous elections. Wow. That's uh, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, was, you know, was that just because? Do you think that was just because? Obviously, we're like, hey, we have to get Trump out of office. We all got to come together and get him out, no matter what. So. As many voters as we can get. Yeah, I don't say there's no fraud on them. We don't. I don't want to get into that really. But no, no. Well, yeah, I'm gonna say. See, again, and this is another thing, Chris, that fascinates me today is what I call cultural narratives. Uh, the narratives that we have on everything, and if just by take any event, any event that happens, immediately is spun towards a particular narrative, and depending on what Kool Aid you drink, yeah. you know, that's where you go. What do you mean, like cultural narrative as in, so what Kool-Aid you drink as far as like, all right, so we might talk about fake news, like Fire or even Fox or well, yeah. CNN, like what's your, where do you get your news sources from? Twitter. Right. When I, when I talk about the Kool-Aid you drink, and, and by the way, I'm not talking about being poisoned here in this right. case. I'm just talking about your preferred, uh, your preferred drink. We could use any, you know, uh, I'm a, I'm a Coke drinker, have been all my life. You okay. know, I love Coca-Cola. You know, I will not drink a Pepsi no matter what, you know, if I have a Pepsi, I go to Mountain Dew, you know, <laughs> I, it, it, 
I just stay away. I, it, it's just a preference. Okay. Well, that's the same thing with news sources that I've found. And what happens is that people kind of gravitate towards their preferred Kool-Aid, their yeah. preferred soft drink, and that becomes their source of information. And, you know, we just have to recognize that news itself is always biased. It's always been biased. Right. You know, I used to work for a newspaper. I can tell you it's biased. It's called an editor. The editor really tells you what they want to have on the front page. They tell you what they want to have on the back page. They tell you what they have on the editorial page. Right. And and so a newspaper has a bias. And, you know, we want objective news, but it's just everything has a spin to it. And the problem today is that we've kind of retreated into these echo chambers where we allow this allow the news to become bigger than it really is. You know, the, the narrative becomes bigger. Uh, you think about the George Floyd uh, situation. The narrative got bigger than it really was. You know, uh, it, it was a tragedy, obviously a tragedy, but it got way bigger than it, than it, than it would have in, in other situations of, 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 like, uh, of like type of, of, of activity. So, you know, and, you know, again, depending on your perspective on, on the whole thing, it, that narrative then takes off. So when you were writing for that, you were you were a writer for that newspaper. Is that what you? No, this was actually one of my earliest jobs was a newspaper reporter. Oh so, yeah, I was I was I was a writer. Uh, it wasn't very long. It was one of those wonderful gigs I had as a very young guy uh, when I was just kind of in a time of transition. Um, but um, I, I love newspaper writing, and but I learned a lot in that in that brief time I worked for the newspaper about how news is gathered, how news is disseminated, how news is, is uh, prioritized, Yeah, you know, but did your editor kind of would tell you what to report on and how they want like the spin you, they wanted to put on them. Or? Well, we didn't think about spin back then. Okay. It wasn't about spin. Uh, and that's the difference today. When you think about news is that we have, we have people, you know, you take a CNN, take a Fox, take an MSNBC, they report the facts, but then we bring in all these other people. Let's call them the color commentators of the football game. Okay. <laughs> and these color commentators then spin the facts towards, okay, this is what, this is what this means. This is, this is, this is what's going on here. That's what a commentator does. And we've become more uh, persuaded by the commentary than, you know, the facts are interpreted either way, you know, yeah. When you when when you look at January 6th, you know, I, it, immediately it was interesting to me. It was it was interesting to me that there were certain news outlets that were immediately calling that an insurrection. I was shocked at that term. I'm still shocked at that term. Hmm. An insurrection because if you understand the meaning of an insurrection, that's what you got in Afghanistan a month or so ago. When the Taliban came in and took over, politically took over Kabul, and the, the entire state of Afghanistan, the nation of Afghanistan, that's called an insurrection. Yeah. You know, yeah. OK, that didn't happen on January 6th. You know, there, there, there were there was only one death of that happened inside the walls of the Capitol. And it was by someone who was shot by a Capitol police officer. And to my it's, we, we just it wasn't it wasn't a violent insurrection. You know, nobody was harmed other than, you know, just some buildings were were broken into. Uh, even even there was there wasn't even real vandalism. I mean, when you think about all that could have happened, mm, that was think about nice how all that could have happened on January 6th. It didn't happen. That's why, you know, you know, I, I even kind of shrink at the idea of it being a riot. Uh, you know, I think that there were some bad fellows, obviously, right. January 6th. 
but I'm giving a, I'm just giving a, you know, these, these are the facts, you know, can we, can we, you know, how do we, how do we spin them? And depending then the other side then spun it in a totally different direction. So, you know, what, what is this? Was it we, the people saying we're taking back the house? That was how one side looked at it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's our capital. This, this is, this is our place. This is the people's house. Why can't we come in? So they did. That's how one side looked at it. On the other side, they looked at it as no, this is a violent, you know, insurrection to uh, to overtake the government and change the election. Okay. Did you keep you know? up with the QAnon and that whole aspect of uh, that no, group, I, I guess? Yeah, no, I, I'm not. I'm not a. You know, that's that's not my area, and uh, I'm not. Uh, I, while I, I I'll, I'll really admit that I lean conservative in, in some of my views. Uh, I, I tend to be more of a moderate and just, uh, you know, as far as how we just need to be, we, we need to be more politically aware of both sides. Sure. I think that's the problem today is we just don't have conversations on this. And I can be, you can be on the left and I can be your best friend. I have, I have many friends who are on the left and I, I, I love them and, and I, I believe they love me and, and we have, we have great conversations and it's funny. Uh, my, my model, if you will, for someone on the right is Ronald Reagan, uh, Ronald Reagan uh, and Tip O'Neill used to go out for a beer every single night or so I'm told, or most nights they would go out for a beer. Okay. Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan were constantly battling in the press if you watch, if you watch them outside of, uh, you know, if you just watch the news on them, they, you know, Tip O'Neill said some very mean things about Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Ronald Reagan was always kind of was always very nice to Tip O'Neill, but you know, he got his stuff done too. But they were always battling. But what was interesting was Tip O'Neill himself confessed that you know Ronald Reagan was a great friend, and to me, that's what's lost in politics today on the national level and even the state level for many of us is uh, the, the friendship that, that politics can provide, you know, Adams, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson were, were virulent uh, opponents of each other. They completely disagreed for mm -hmm. years and years and years. John Adams wouldn't even talk to Thomas Jefferson and the same thing backwards. Uh, the, the, they didn't, they didn't have any type of correspondence until um, they started, I think it was Benjamin Rush, uh, the, the doctor, Benjamin Rush, who was a friend of both of them said, you know, you have some differences, but why don't you talk them out? Why don't you? And so they did, they started by just writing to each other. Mm -hmm. And we have, we call them now the Adams Jefferson letters. It's a very famous conversation that was all written down where they shared their opinions and they talked about it back and forth for, for years. And what's, what's interesting about that story is they literally died the exact same day John Adams died in the morning. Thomas Jefferson died in the afternoon wow. and they died on the exact same day. It was July 4th, 1826, exactly 50 years after the July 4th independence declaration of independence. Wow. They, they died on July 4th. How interesting is that? Wow. That is super yeah. interesting. I didn't even, yeah. I never knew that. Yeah. No, they died on the exact same day. And they were they, they were opponents of each other most of their lives politically, but they got together in the end. And I think that's what we need in America. You know, that's, that's my my call to my politician friends. It's 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 my call to all of us here in America is let's just you know, let's just find ways, find the common ground instead of focusing on what's different. Mm -hmm. Let's find the common ground. Yeah, I, I like the way you said that. I mean, that was just beautifully said, I guess, just that, you know, there's no reasons that, you know, 
like today, you and I, I didn't know what kind of conversation we were going to have, but there's no reason for you and I just to, you know, if we disagreed on something, I mean, who knows, we might hear later on, but just to have a full out, all out battle about it. I mean, yeah, we can disagree and we can sit down and talk, have a rational yeah. conversation about it. There's no reason not to, but almost, you know, I heard somebody call like Twitter, Facebook, and even Instagram now like a virtual government and that, you know, if you get your information from there or your politics from there or whatever, and that, you know, somebody misreads something, they get their facts wrong. And then all of a sudden you have a thousand other people who go along with this. And this is how like almost all these, I don't want to say a riot or anything, but a protest, but this is just how all this yeah. misinformation gets spread. And then, you know, obviously Twitter is one of the biggest, I guess, social media platforms out there. And it's just, it's what causes almost this anger because people almost want to be so right all the time. And I get that. You know, I like being right, but who doesn't? But right. and but that's what causes actual causes the issues, I think. And people just right. I mean, for back letter words, just make it a complete shit show. And yeah. Eh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess, you know, I I don't have a problem with people having a problem with with the big tech stuff. Obviously there are some that are really concerned about how much power the big tech has, but we've, we've seen these type of monopolies before we've had to deal with them. I think they're being dealt with now at the highest levels. Anyway, uh, my, my, my concern is that there's an element of our population that um, in the name of social justice wants to cancel culture. They want to literally eliminate a section of culture, eliminate history even. Mm -hmm. Let's just totally wipe that out as if it never happened. Well, it did happen. Yeah, you can't. You know, we can't, we can't, we can't, uh, we can't cancel. And that's the blessing. See, the thing we don't like about the internet is that it has uh, capabilities to control and convince and persuade, but it also has the ability to expose us to ideas Mm -hmm. that, you know, I don't, I don't think the internet's going to be able to completely, maybe Twitter can, maybe Facebook can, maybe uh, YouTube can shut down, you know, uh, certain types of, um, of thought or ideas, but you know, the internet's still going to be there and people are going to find it. And that's part of the blessing of that. Uh, but I do have a, I do have a concern about the, um, those who would like to shut down and eliminate voices just because they disagree with it. You know, I, that, that was not something, again, our founding fathers envisioned. Um, and part of that, I think, was because they did have a, a strong religious belief of that, that said, hey, listen, we treat all men as, as our brothers. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're all created in the image of God, they would say, and, and we all were brothers and we can have this. Let's have a conversation like a brother would have a conversation, not an enemy. Yeah, I mean, I agree 100 percent with you. I mean, yeah. I mean, like we just said, there's no reason just to sit down and we can't talk about it. And like, even if you're an enemy, I mean, still sit down and talk about it nowadays. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's just odd to me. Just, I don't understand why we've gotten to this, you know, uh, I don't know what the word I'm trying to say is, but just, you know, just whatever. If somebody says like with cancel culture, I mean, you go, I don't know where I'm going with this point, but even retro cancel culture, you're, you're, you're met, you're wanting to cancel something that happened, you know, like you just said, 40 years ago, it makes no sense. Like it's already happened. What are you going to do? And plus with the internet, it's still going to be on there in some sort of format. I mean, you just got to do a complete search for it. How are you really canceling just because you took them off and they can't do a, a tour or a show anymore? I mean, yeah. And in many ways, the, the the cancel culture has actually created people, made them bigger than what they really were, you know, 
that's it's actually gave them a bigger platform because it's drawn people to them that wouldn't normally have have, have gone to them. Yeah, Shane, so I th- yeah, Shane Ellis, he's a comedian. That just happened to him. He got canceled from Saturday Night Live, and just because mm-hmm. he got canceled, now that. He's been on some of the biggest podcasts in the world, and now he's got his own. He's actually doing comedy again. So I didn't mean to cut you yeah. off there, but yeah, that's yeah. I just wanted to get that point out there. So yeah, I mean that makes perfect sense. So yeah, you, it's like almost adding more fuel to the fire, I guess you could say. Yeah, well, I I thought it was interesting. I'm a I'm a Shark Tank fan, uh, and, and I've uh, I I was watching an episode last night, a very early episode of a guy came in and. And it was very, it was pretty clear from the beginning. Every one of the sharks figured it out right away. He didn't want a deal. He actually wanted, he, he wanted them to reject him. And the reason was because he wanted to show his product off to all this national platform. This show on TV was more important to him than getting a deal with one of these investors. Yeah. And I thought that's, an, it's, that's a totally different way of looking at it. Most people who went on that show were trying to get one of these investors to invest in their company. He went on the show to go, no, I want exposure. Sure. I don't actually, I want you to reject me because that's going to be better television for me. Yeah. You know, it might even create the sympathy buy (laughs) for my product. Yeah. And so who who even knows who's watching? Then they might get at him later on or find him later if they want to endorse this product or whatever. That's a good point, though. Yeah. I mean, what is it? You know, no, what is it? uh, No news is bad news or whatever. Whatever. I can't even think of that. Well, uh, again, a little cultural tidbit, historical tidbit, but I, I love uh, a big fan of rock music and rock music history. But, you know, back in the uh, late 70s, I want to say around 78, 79, Alice Cooper was doing a concert. I think it was up in the up in the Michigan area, maybe Detroit, you know, that area. Uh, but uh, he was doing a concert where someone, you know, just I don't know, for whatever reason, brought a chicken they brought a chicken to the concert and uh, someone threw it up on stage and he just picked it up and he threw it back to him, you know, yeah. and a live chicken and the tour, the crowd then tore the chicken apart themselves. Well, the press reported it as uh, or someone in the press somehow reported that Alice Cooper had bit the head off this chicken. You know, that he had, he had actually, you know, was the one that kind of instigated this. Like an Ozzy Osbourne and then, kind of thing? And then, and then through the, and then through the, well, and Ozzy Osbourne actually duplicated that. I think he bit oh, the head off of a dove, yeah. dove later in the eighties. He did kind of, oh, he was on was a record a deal. I thought it was a bat. Yeah. 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 No, it was a dove. Oh, okay. It was a dove he did. Wrong. Yeah. I don't think he's, I don't think he's dumb enough to do a bat. I don't know <laughs> if anybody's dumb enough to do a bat, but what's interesting about this was, uh, Alice Cooper, you know, at first denied it even. No, it's just not true. I didn't bite the head off that chicken. Frank Zappa got on the phone with him and said, dude, dude, listen, this is the best publicity you're ever going to get. Take it. You know, yeah, you bit the head off that chicken. Go for it. You know? <laughs> so this whole story that he bit the head off this chicken kind of erupted from that. It, it never happened. The crowd actually killed that chicken. Wow. But Alice Cooper got, see, these are where narratives become part of our context and they become part, part of, you know, what we believe about things. And, and that's, that's what I do. I'm a cultural historian. I just love to, to study these type of things and, and how how they they impact and influence and move culture. Is there a certain part of uh, that's your favorite to study? Like, is rock music your favorite? Or oh yeah, I, I have uh, anything that's a personal thing of mine. I, I I've studied it pretty intensely. Uh, I, I love baseball. Baseball is another big, uh, wonderful uh, history that that we have out there. Uh, in fact, I think baseball is the history of America, if, especially the 20th century. 
you know, baseball's always been kind of uh, ahead of the game and behind the game at the same time, uh, as far as our culture goes, but it is, um, it's a fascinating look, but yeah, rock music, uh, music history, particularly, uh, uh, rock and, and, and pop history. Um, yeah, love all that. What do you think about baseball? As you can tell. <laughs> I, mean, just I was, was going to say something about that earlier. Then I was like, well, we got going, but, uh, yeah. what do you think about baseball in today's time? Do you think it's losing its, uh, losing its heat, you know, just with the younger generations, or do you think it's actually, you know, some people will say that the steroid era was like the biggest, best time for baseball, but you know, uh, you know, I'm kind of, yeah. you know, on the fence. I mean, I enjoy watching the game, especially live in person when I can. So, um, yeah. I, mean, I think what, what I, think? Uh, I think, I think baseball has become a victim of, um, of other games. I mean, when you start looking at your little boys and girls playing ball and stuff, you know, soccer tends to be the one we started them on. Right. The very young ones, we started them on soccer. And that was that was something that kind of emerged in the 1980s. Uh, soccer, I mean, when I was growing up, nobody played soccer. Same. Nobody. I mean, we didn't we didn't even play soccer in phys ed. I don't I don't remember doing that in physical education. It just wasn't it just didn't happen. But um, soccer became uh, it's, it's more of a global sport. And I can understand that. And obviously, when certain stars and we started to have professional teams around the country in America and uh, it's a great sport. I, I've personally never gotten into it. But I think that's what happened to baseball was that, you know, basketball became really the, the game of the street. Baseball for a long time was the game of the street uh, in the early 20th century. I mean, yeah. what makes what makes baseball unique was they were playing baseball in the in the uh, in the concrete jungles of New York, you know, mm-hmm. with bottle cap you know, balls and and sticks and and such. And so a lot of the, the players were coming out of that of that context. Well, basketball kind of became the, the game of the street. Uh, and, you know, kind of overtook that. And so you had a whole generation, especially of the, of the kids that grew up in the urban context who just weren't playing baseball anymore. And most of the, um, most of the black players, for example, that, that come into the baseball game are coming in from, from other parts of, of the world. Puerto Rico, you know, they're not coming, Republic. They're, and, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're not, they're not homegrown. So uh, I think that's kind of been a, an issue contextually or, or, you know, as far as demographically, context, you know, culturally there. But um, the, the game of, of baseball is one that I think has to be acquired. Uh, the love of the game. Uh, my, my son uh, never played baseball, wasn't much of a one to watch baseball at all uh, growing up. He, he played, played it for a while because, you know, dad liked it and wanted him to play it for a while. And he did. But, you know, he, he eventually dropped out and didn't do it, went to other other interests. But now he's come. He's kind of come full circle. He picked it up and started watching it. Wow. Uh, we're both Cardinal fans. You can't be a can't be a baseball fan right now without liking those St. Louis Cardinals a little bit. And, and just the amazing run they put together in September. You know, they had a three percent chance in in September 1st a 3% chance of actually making the playoffs and, and, and they finished uh, what was five or six, six games up in the wild card. That's impressive. Uh, that, that it's the most, in many ways, it's the most impressive run at the end of a season in the history of baseball. Um, you know, 17 straight games, you win 17 straight games, any time in the year, you're going to be in first place. Yeah. But you win 17 games at the end of the year. That's a playoff run. That's saying and, something. Yeah. 
But so, yeah. Well, what do you think, Chris? What's what's your thoughts? I've actually just because of and I don't know if this relates to the pandemic. I mean, I learned a lot of myself in the pandemic just that. And this is kind of why I started this podcast is I had to put my energy towards something. But also that, you know, I miss, you know, I, I enjoyed sitting down and usually I'm a better. I, mean, I watch basketball more than I do baseball. But um, I found myself this year, actually, because when baseball came back, when I got home from my workout or whatever, I would actually sit down and watch a Nationals game out on TV more. And I got to enjoy it more. And I don't know if I just, you know, took it for granted and just was like, I'll catch the highlights on the Internet somewhere on Instagram or ESPN. But it was just so nice. And then, you know, back in June, actually, we have a minor league team not far from here, the Salem Red Sox. And I went up there and watched a game. And it was just like, why have I been doing this? You know, and then I just had this thought, you know, I'm 35 years old. And, you know, I don't I guess that makes me a millennial. But I'm wondering if younger generations are actually like, hmm. You know, like maybe we should start watching baseball. Do I have that thought too? And just, you know, we see bigger players now and or hopefully bigger players. And not since, you know, my, you know, Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, who most of the real one known ones from steroid. But yeah, I kind of thought that we might see a swing back just because people want to get out more. And like, it's so easy to go to a baseball game. And some might argue that it's pretty expensive, but yeah, I mean, can be. But you of the know, professional sports, it's the cheapest though still. I exactly. Think. Yeah, and yeah. even like the I mean, even a minor league game, it costs nothing to go to. And most small towns have one, a minor league baseball yeah. team of some sort, yeah. pretty close by. So I kind of thought that we might see a cultural shift to seeing baseball get you know more popular than NFL. And just I mean, I'll end this rant here in a minute. And just I have this weird thought that because of the NFL and like CTE protocol and concussions coming out, and kind of what you were saying earlier, that yeah. we're going to see more parents put their children into soccer. Rather than yeah. growing up playing football, just because we're starting to learn that, hey, you know who is it? Uh, McMahon from the uh, the, um, the Chicago Bears. That you know he's battling demons Jim every day. Yeah, Jim McMahon. There you go. Yeah, and yeah. it's just you know, and I think that was part. I can't remember what documentary he was on, but when I watched it, I was like, man. I mean, I, yeah. and there was a podcast with uh, Adrian Foster on, and he said, I do not want my kid playing football, and yeah. I'm going to push him. He, you know, I think he kind of said like if he chooses to. to so, but I'm going to try to do what I can to keep him away from it. And and there's a whole lot of other stuff that we don't see on the, and that's probably not professional sports on the back end of stuff, you know, little small deals going down and, you know, I don't know how to say it, just some, some under the table kind of things, I guess. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, you know, there's a lot to love about baseball. Uh, one of the reasons I stopped playing, stopped watching professional basketball was because I got tired of the, uh, you know, the one man show. Mm -hmm. approach of of the NBA, you know, where one guy basically, or two or three guys took all the shots, you know, they go down there and they all take the shots. And, you know, I was always taught you pass the ball at least three times before you take a shot. So, you know, you, and you still see that in the college game. I love the college game of basketball, but for some reason, when they get into the NBA, they lose that. And, and, you know, I just, I just, I just lost interest in the NBA, but what I love about baseball and football is kind of the same way. You've got this, you got these superstars that have to perform at a certain level. And I think fancy football drives a lot of that as well. I know right, right now games are playing and fancy football is, is big. I've got my fantasy football team going and, and I'm wondering how my team is doing. And, and I don't like it when one of my players doesn't perform or the coach does something that takes him out of the game where he can't perform to where he should. I get all that. For sure. But sure. the thing I love about baseball more than anything is it is truly a, a it's a, it's a game of, of equality. When you think about it, it's, it's the quintessential American game. If you get up there as a, as a batter and you, you, let's say you hit a home run and then you show off 
you know, you hit that thing and then you flip the bat and you make some big show of it as you go around. I'll guarantee you the next time you're up, that pitcher's going to be hitting you high and inside. Oh, yeah. He might even, oh, yeah. He might even plunk you one. Uh-huh. He might even plunk you one. And that's the thing about baseball. It always has these, you know, it's, it's always been a game of, of, and some people don't like this, but of cheating when you think about it. The, the batters have always been looking for a way to get ahead, whether it's doing something to their bats, to their mm-hmm. swing, to, uh, you know, the, the, the tar that they put on the bats to hold the stickiness, yeah. whatever it might be. Pitchers are always looking for advantage, whether it was the spitball or the, cur- <laughs> the curveball. The curveball was originally illegal. Did you know that, Chris? I didn't it was know the curveball was pitch. I didn't know that was illegal. Yeah, it was it was a pitch. Uh, I should I should be careful in how I say that. It was tolerated, but many of the purists of the early game did not like the curveball. Uh, Branch Rickey called it a, a deceptive pitch. Uh, he said the fact that you use deception, the curveball is a deceptive pitch because it starts up here and it changes and it curves, and the batter needs to be given an opportunity to hit that ball. Yeah, you know, I, I love that. I love that. The spitball. I mean, the whole dead ball era was because they would take these balls and they would doctor them up. They would scratch them up. They would yeah. muddy them up. And they would, I mean, they used one ball for the game. And by the end, it was pure mush. <laughs> That's why there were very few home runs yeah. during the dead ball era. And when they finally realized, in fact, that's why they changed. I think it was 1919, a guy got killed playing baseball. He was a batter and he got hit by one of those dead balls, which was still wow. very, very much alive, evidently. Oh. <laughs> got it, hit him right in the hit him right in the temple, knocked him out, knocked him out and killed him right there uh, on the spot. And, you know, so they, they said, we're not going to allow these, these dirty balls to exist anymore. Because yeah. that's what the pitcher did. The first time they got the ball, they dirtied it up. Not going to happen. So they always they went to more of a, a of a white, nice white ball to the throw, and that meant new balls. And of course, when you got someone like Babe Ruth that suddenly comes into the game in 1919, who can suddenly see that ball and start hitting that ball, oh, yeah. it created a whole new era for baseball. For sure. Well, this year they actually put in the rule to actually for the umpires to inspect the baseballs before every inning, or if they actually think that the pitcher it was doing something now, right? Well, you, the, when the, you. What they've done is that as a pitcher, when you come off, when you when you're done uh, with your game, you know, you're 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 coming out of the game. Let's put it that way. You're coming out of the game. You have to go over an umpire that inspects your glove uh, and and, and to make sure that you didn't do anything illegal. I guess, you know, you'd have to be very careful about where you hide your stuff. Yeah. (laughs) You you, you ever see the movie Major League where I forgot the actor's name, but he was talking about, you know, he put Vagisil on a ball and jalapeno in his nose to do something. that's true. Though. Yeah, yeah, it was true. Gaylord, and I never Gaylord knew that. Perry, that's true. I grew up in the 70s with Gaylord Perry. Um, Gaylord Perry was a guy, he put Vaseline behind his ears and he would just, I mean, his ball, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a, a spit ball. The thing was a slimy, stinky ball. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you got a bat on it, it was, it was just, boom, you know, just, it was crazy. Um but, yeah, I mean, you can get me talking baseball all day long. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll switch gears here then. Uh, and just, well, we'll just talk about your book a little bit more. And we had to get that was yeah. a good little talk. We'll uh, promote that a little bit. So uh, let's uh, get a little dive in on that. So you're basically talking about the technology among generations. and Yeah, well, I, I think we've got a problem to begin with. And let me just okay. unpack the problem and then give you what I think is the solution. 
is that we've been naming generations now really since 1980. Now, earlier generations did pick up names in the popular culture. But in 1980, there was a man by the name of Landon Jones who wrote a book called Great Expectations. And it was about his, his generation. And he called them the baby boom generation. Okay. And so the baby boom generation... And, and he labeled them as being between 1946 to 1964. That's where we got that classic definition. Bottom line is the baby boom generation was what if you figure 64, it took 16 years to put a name on that generation that finally stuck. Gen X, our, our name came around uh, in uh, 1991 uh, by a name, by a guy by the name of Douglas Copeland. He wrote a book called Gen X, okay. and it was a fiction book about his generation. Uh, but it got picked up in the popular culture, and suddenly we have Gen X. Millennials, same year, the exact same year as Douglas Copeland. The millennials hadn't been, they, they hadn't even celebrated their 10th birthday yet. And uh, Neil Howe and William Strauss, those sociologists, historians uh, that I talked about earlier, uh, they wrote a book called Generations, and they talked about this new millennial generation that was coming up. And the millennial, by the way, got their name from a study that was was being done in 1982 uh, of, of kids, of babies. And I don't remember how big the study was. It was a longitudinal study that was to last for 18 years from the time they were born in 82 to the time they graduated high school in the year 2000. That's why they were called millennial. It was called a millennial baby study. Mm. And Strauss and Howe picked up on that. I believe it was them that picked up on that. And they named them this, this generation, the millennials. Now, if I'm wrong on that, uh, somebody else did it, but uh, I believe it was Strauss and Howe that, that made that. They definitely coined the word millennial generation. Okay. Okay. But what's interesting, Chris, is this. We, we have this generation today called Gen Z which I think is one of the most lazy labels of all. Uh, millennials were initially called, they batted around the idea of Gen Y because you have Gen X, Gen Y, now Gen Z. Well, guess what we're calling the, the newest generation now? Gen, right. They're calling them the Generation uh, alpha. alpha. Yeah. Alpha right, Generation. Gen a. We're going back to the beginning. And all I'm saying is I just got to the point where I got angry enough where I said, it's time to write a book. That, that looks at this in a different way. And I've been kind of thinking about this for a long time about how are, our, how are generations really framed? Let, let's not let a marketing, uh, that's how, it was a marketing uh, corporation that, that uh, organization that, that coined the word Gen Z. Well, don't let marketers do it. Don't let, um, don't let fiction writers do it. Um, and, you know, even Landon Jones, I think he was an editor for like People Magazine or, you know, one of those magazines, one of those, kind of um, cultural magazines, you know, why don't we, why don't we look at it a little bit better? And I had long been playing with the idea of technology and how it informs our, our culture, how it works, how cultures pop. And it's interesting that generations are about 20 years apart, but what's also interesting is about every 10 years, we have a major communication type of technology that just pops okay. and tips. And in the book, I call it a tipping point. And when it tips, it then is the generation that's coming of age and you come of age between your 10th birthday and your 25th birthday. So the generation that's kind of coming up, they're around 10 to 25 years of age. When this technology tips, it becomes part of their social psyche, you might say. 
because how they, they interact. So I go in the book, I go all the way back to 1900 because there's been more technological change in the world since 1900 than the entire history of the world. So I start there. Right. And in 1900, you know, the first generation that came out of the shoot, I call them the TNT generation. They were the telephone and transportation generation. You know, the telephone was popping. Right. Automobiles were popping. Right. Airplanes were popping. Motorcycles were popping. So, you know, that that was what defined that generation. Uh, and then in 1910, we had another uh, generation that was being born. And they were what was popping for them around 1920, I think 10 years in, was motion pictures. Ah. So the motion picture generation. You know, there was a time where if you wanted to get your news, you went down to the movie house to get your news. Right. It's called a newsreel. Right. In 1920 to 1940, you had another generation start to pop. That was the radio generation. They grew up on radio. They came of age to radio. In 1930 to 1950, it was vinyl records. What do you think ran all those, you know, all those record, uh, all those radio stations needed records to play. And sure. so vinyl record became that dominant communication uh, device. And then from 1940 to 1960, television emerged 1950 to 1970 space it was all about uh, space, space it was all yeah. about going to the moon and i grew up and i was born in 1963 so i experienced that whole that whole uh, time uh and then from 1960 to 1980 that was the um um uh, gamer generation you know, video games. Video games it's out. amazing how those those kind of emerged. And and you think about the first one popping, it was Pong in 1972. That was the first video game. Yeah. 1970, 1990, cable television. We forget how influential cable television was. For sure. So if you're born, if you're born between 70 and 90, you experienced that cable television. That, that was me. That was you. Yeah. And then if you're born between 1980 and the year 2000, which would be you as well. Yep. Um, it was the PCCP generation, personal computer, cell phone. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about Chris here and we look at you and where you were born, your unique point in time, it was cable television. It was personal computer. It was cell phone. Those three technologies were popping as you were coming of age for sure. 10 to 25. Say, and, and of course the later generations, if you're born 1990 to 2010, it was the net generation internet. If you're born uh, since 2000, 2000 to 2020 or 2020, uh, you were what I call the iTech generation. You're not Gen Z, you're iTech. I with I, the big T, like iPhone, iPod, uh, iPad, yep. iTunes, iPhone, yeah. all that popped for you in the, in the early 2000s. And then, um, you know, the newest generation isn't the alpha generation. I'm calling them the robo generation. Robotics. Ooh. You know, start, they started to be born in 2010. What is popping right now? Robotics. Sure. Everywhere you look is robots are coming and they're going to get even more a part of, of our culture. I think by 2030, buckle up, buttercup, because the next 10 years are going to be really transformative. Uh, we're going we're gonna to change around what I call a hair technology. And the last chapter of the book talks about these hair technologies. Now, it looks like you and I could use some hair technology, yeah, you know, Chris. Yeah, you know. <laughs> just, just saying. But um, the hair technologies are holograms, artificial intelligence, and robotics. Hmm. And when you look at those technologies that are popping, you think about smart speakers. We, we look at Siri and Amazon and all that in our, our world today. But imagine when your clothes are internet connected. 
not just your appliances. You know, that's what's coming in 2030. Yeah. You know, that's what's coming in, in, in the, in the years after that, everything will be connected to the internet, not just appliances. Well, I mean, not just, your- you know who Elon Musk is, right? I mean, Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. He, he's actually trying to develop the Neuralink, and we're actually he's going to implement a small device that goes into your brain that will actually be connected within our bodies to the internet. So not only our clothes, but our brains will be connected to the internet. We can get information faster, and you know mm-hmm. at, that way. And yeah. we don't have to get. And that scares it. a lot of people too. Yeah. By the way, <laughs> I'm not going to say I'm going to be an early adapter of it, but um, we're going to have to see a lot of tests. But it is just, it's very, very admirable of him to you know. I mean, obviously, he probably has a mind to do that. And just, I would, you know, I like, you know, he called us uh, uh, people a cyborg now just because we have a cell phone in our hands at all times. You know, if we lose that thing, you know, we go crazy about it. It's like losing our firstborn child almost, you know? So, right. For those it's an kids. extension of ourselves. Exactly. And yeah. So he's already yeah. calling us cyborg. So if he invents that Neuralink, I mean, it's almost that we won't even need the cell phone. We can do everything within ourselves, almost like Matrix style, I guess. Yes. You know, like- we've been we've been cyborg though for a lot longer than that, Chris. I mean, think about all the artificial things that can be put in your body now. Artificial hearts, artificial. That's a good point. Know, I didn't even think about that. That's I mean, there are all sorts of things. I mean, we have. I have a friend who got a a, a collicular ear implant. You know, yeah. what do you think that is? That's artificial ear. You know, we, we do all these, we're, we're more artificial. Some of us have more artificial stuff, artificial knees. Think about all the bones and yeah, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Replacements and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. We've been, we've been moving cyborg for years. Mm, I didn't decades. think about that. That's a great point. Yeah. I mean, we're almost going to be half robotic. I mean, at one point. Well, and that's the difference here is robots up until now have been under our control because we control the algorithms. But what artificial intelligence does is it allows these learning machines to learn their environment. I have a robot uh, vacuum cleaner myself. Uh, oh, one, of those yeah. I, one of those Roomba things or iRobots, whatever they are. And they, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, it goes on. But it learns the room. It literally goes and it learns the room. Uh, and it that's the difference is artificial intelligence connected with robots is going to really transform who we are. And then you throw in the holographic stuff, you know, uh, I just, I just missed out on my favorite band that I grew up with. Kiss was coming to Boise. They canceled, they canceled and I missed them. I've always wanted to see them live. Never got a chance to, but guess what? With holographic technology, have you seen what ABBA is doing? Uh, ABBA's doing a tour using holographic technology. I, I've, I've watched them do, I think they did Tupac that way at some event that they put him there singing um, with holographic yeah. technology. Yeah. It's coming. And what's going to what's gonna be interesting is that holographic technology in the future, I think, is going to create a nostalgic holographic um, uh, venue where people could go back. Can you imagine if you could see, you know, I've always wanted to see kiss live, but can you imagine seeing them live in 1975 or 1977 when they were in their heyday? Yeah. Yeah. And it looks like them and it actually looks like they're on stage. Um, Yeah. We had a, we had a holographic concert here a couple of years ago in Boise, Buddy Holly and Roy Orbison were in concert, you know, and I had a friend who went to the concert and he said, this is like, they're really there. You know, well, I looked that real. You walked up there. Real. It was it was that real. The music was that dynamic. It was that encompassing, you know, overwhelming. And it was like they were really there in concert. I agree. 100, I agree that if they could make that technology 
even you know almost like a cell phone that almost anybody could have it at one point i mean there's no reason you and i could have a holographic conversation like we're doing now and that instead of through a computer it almost just be like the real thing i guess correct yeah. well they're working I, I left my cell phone in another room but they're working on a on a cell phone right now that when you when you put it like this it, it the, the when you're doing a video chat the head pops up in 3d so you can literally oh. talk to the person like you're talking in 3D. So you're not looking. We're so one dimensional. And this is what's going to go away. I, I, it, it's hard to be predictive uh, on this as far as how long it's going to take. But there's no doubt it's going to happen. Holographic technology is going to remove the physical screen from our culture in the future. And it could be as early as 2030. I, I think you're going to see it all over the place. Holographic screens will pop up. They will be part of who we are uh, and, and our culture. And you'll just see them everywhere. And they're going to be smart. They're going to know. They're going to pop. You could be walking down the street and a holographic screen could pop up and say, hey, you're, you're, you're looking a little, um, a little thirsty there because your, your clothes are communicating to the Internet. Yeah. That you're, you know, you're, you're losing water or you're, and you need, you need something to drink. Well, right around the corner is an ice cold water just waiting for you. And you can see how advertising contextualized advertising could be big with this, you know, advertising right to the individual yeah. could be huge. Well, our cell phones are almost doing that right now as far as ads and stuff. I mean, you know, you go down through social the, media. Yeah. yeah. It's just like, social media is already doing that. It's like, yeah. It's Anywhere you go on social media, it comes right back and follows you with that particular ad. I bought something this last summer. I, I, it was a speaker system and I still get ads for that particular company Same thing if i even look up something i'm just you know thinking about buying something i start getting ads it's like what the, what right. the heck's going on man so right so this this is what gen tech's about it's about saying listen it's our generations are not defined by some baby boom demographic of a bunch of babies that got born post-world war ii it's not some ambiguous gen x or gen z uh, it's not naming a generation by the alphabet uh, it's not even a millennial study, you know, although that's probably the most accurate of, of the terms. If you if you really think about it in the end, our generational context, our who we are, our psyche is really the technology that we come of age to again between 10 and 25 that pops and we communicate to that. We interact and our technology becomes who we are. We become gen tech. Yeah, I mean, the- there's a good, and I know we're getting short on time here, and you've been gracious with your time, but one last thing, we'll take this home on this one. But, you know, okay. with, with technology and new stuff coming out, there's almost that kind of what we were saying. If you, if you do get this Neuralink and stuff, that, you know, the whole, when you we talk about aliens and stuff, that you see a big head and small little bodies, <laughs> that we're almost, people are like, if, if you look, you know, like you were talking about, you know, 20 years down the road, maybe not 20, but maybe after we're gone, we're going to see the human body almost come into that type of shape because, you know, we'll be able to like, you know, talk without using words anymore, you know, and we won't need to lift anything if we have robotic stuff doing it for us. So, yeah. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, do you see that happening? Well, or, or, I mean, yeah. Or is that too much? Well, too far. Yeah. Let me let me um, let me start by saying, because a lot of people, when we get into the robotics and how smart they get. And there's always the question, will they get so smart that they can actually reproduce themselves without us? being in the picture and all that. And at that point, can they then take us over? And you have all sorts of Hollywood movies that deal oh, with, yeah. with that type of a theme. And I think that's going to be Hollywood. Um, I'm, a, I'm a man of faith. 
And so, you know, I kind of start with a different perspective on, on some of these things. I don't believe God's going to let us get that big that we, that we can just destroy ourselves. You know, if, 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 God is kind of in control and I believe that he has some control. That's just my faith there working. Then, you know, I, I just don't believe it's going to happen. And here, here's the reason why is there is a distinct difference between us and animals, even though we share what 98% of, of some of the um, characteristics with certain types of animals, sure. uh, DNA and such, uh, there's still a distinct difference. You know, I, I think chimpanzees are very close to human beings. It's, that's, it's that's definitely, a, yeah. yeah, but I, I've yet to see a chimpanzee create a Michelangelo type of painting. I've yet to see a chimpanzee write a, a, a book like Gentech. You know, I've, I've yet to see a, a, a chimpanzee appear on your show. All yeah, right. Well, yeah. Okay. Now there may be some people who act like monkeys when they get on your show (laughs) and such, but you know, that's, that's the difference. And and what robots won't do. And I I think Star Trek hit on this one, Star Trek, the next generation. Remember they had that character named data who was a, a, a Android and they constantly tried to make data into a human. He wanted to have a human chip. And they actually put a human chip in him once, an emotive chip, yeah. so that he could feel the emotions of being human. Because that's what a robot can't do. Spock uh, couldn't do it. He was emotionless. Correct. Data was emotionless. Correct. What makes human beings unique, Chris, is that we have the capacity to emote. You know, that's what makes us different from the animal kingdom as well. We have the capacity to actually emote. And I love that, that idea. And I, I think when it comes down to it, and this is always my message everywhere I go is just be real. You know, I think in this new culture, as we become more, you know, complex and more cyber and more fake, if you will, more artificial might be a better word there for it. Being real is going to be a huge plus. And if we as human beings just certainly learn how to embrace our humanity, which I would suggest is the reality, is being real, is to embrace your humanity, then um, you're going to be a very attractive person in life. I like that. We'll take this home on on a positive note like that. Just be real. Um, So, Dr. Rick, uh, before we get off here, why don't you, uh, if everyone wants to find your, if you have a social media presence and they want to pick up your book in some form, it's your time. How, how, how would anybody do that? So yeah. let them know. Well, you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook. I have an author speaker page there. I have um, also a, a, a LinkedIn. I have an account there. I don't do Instagram yet. Instagram doesn't Ooh. play well with me. So I've kind of said, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll kind of let that one lie for now. But those, those social media you can find me at. If you're interested in the book, uh, Gentech, uh, you can order it through all the, the main distributors out there. It's available at Amazon and such. But if you order it through me, rickchromie.com, uh, maybe you'll throw that link up with your, when, you, when you do your show. Uh, if you order the book through me, you're going to pay about the same price as Amazon. But what I'll do is I'll throw in a personal autograph and free shipping with that. So uh, that, that works. And hopefully that's enough. I'd love you to support uh, support this book. If nothing else, uh, uh, get it, read it, and uh, show it some love on social media. I think it's got a tremendous message, and the people that are reading it right now are just really raving about it. And that's that's a humbling thing sure. to know that your, your message is resonating. So, thank you for having me on the show and being able to yeah. share a little bit about it. No problem. Did you uh, did you do an audiobook version, or is it just straight print? Audiobooks require you to have so many things, so many books sold. I didn't so, know. So, 
Yeah. Um, so what I do is again, the podcasts and I do, I do, I'm doing hopefully in the, in the next few months, I'm going to start moving into more and more YouTube presence, okay. talking about Gentech, different parts of it. But yeah, the audio book portion has to be done. Um, when you have so many sales and right now, and that's a lot of sales, by the way, most authors do not get an audio book. I, I never knew that. So, yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate your time. This was fun. Uh, I really enjoyed this, yeah. Dr. Rick. This was great. So thank you. All right. Just be real folks. We're out. See ya. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.